Welcome to the Uncovered Podcast, where we take a deeper look into the ideas, companies, and entrepreneurs that are creating the future and uncover the stories you haven't heard. Uncovered is presented by PJC, an early-stage venture capital firm committed to supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. We're back with season two of the Uncovered Podcast, where we're exploring the world of Corp Dev. I'm here with my co-host, Rob May. Hi, everybody. And we have Kevin Spain from Emergence Capital uh, here today to uh, to chat with us about his background and uh, his life as a VC and as a, a prior uh, person who did Corp Dev. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. We always like to kick off the, the show with, with just learning more about you and, and diving into your background. And so it would be great to learn more about that. You've spent time both in Corp Dev and in Venture. We'd love to kick it off there and, and hear how you made that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, like a lot of people in venture, I, I, I had a bit of a circuitous path uh, to getting here. I originally came out to the West Coast after business school in the late 90s uh, during the dot-com boom. I co-founded an early SaaS company uh, during that time. And uh, that business, unfortunately, did not make it out of the dot-com bust. So it was kind of a uh, a formative experience for me, bringing me out here and then kind of seeing the ups and the downs of an early stage company. Um, but I, I stayed out on the West Coast when a lot of people were leaving uh, and uh, stayed in tech. And so uh, spent a few years after that at EA, uh, the, the big gaming publisher. I was part of the team that got their online gaming business off the ground and then uh, ended up doing corp dev for them uh, for a couple of years. And then was recruited by Microsoft and, and relocated up to the Seattle area, worked out of Microsoft's headquarters for a few years doing corp dev there as well. So doing acquisitions and investments at Microsoft really across uh, their entire business. Um, so I've seen, I've seen consumer software, enterprise software, you know, on the operating side and then joined Emergence Capital uh, 14 years ago uh, t- to do early stage uh, B2B focused venture. And how have you seen... M&A change over time from kind of when you were actually executing on the transactions to on the venture side where, you know, you're setting your companies up for, you know, acquisitions, how things developed and and how have you seen the the M&A environment change and morph? Yeah, well, I think I think a couple of things have shifted. I think when I started doing Corp Dev and, you know, dating myself here a little bit, but if I go back, you know, maybe, you know, 15 to 20 years ago, um, you know, we were still not in a great place from a from a macro perspective in tech, right? I mean, I, we were still kind of recovering a little bit from the dot com bust. Uh, multiples were very different at that point, and you know, there weren't a lot of really large uh, tech acquisitions that were happening at that point. Software acquisitions that were happening at that point. So, a lot of what was happening in that era were you know sort of smaller tuck in acquisitions where a company you know, was less buying revenue, less buying presence in a new market and more kind of buying a team and a technology uh, to kind of fill in a product gap uh, or something in the roadmap that they wanted to accelerate. I think, you know, you fast forward, you know, really to today. And, and frankly, if you look at the last sort of five to 10 years, uh, you've seen the market change dramatically. You've seen many more large deals happen uh, at higher multiples. And I think you've seen a lot of large acquirers um, frankly, become a lot more comfortable with the idea of buying large businesses that frankly take them in entirely new directions. 
Um, you know, when I just reflect on Microsoft as an example, you know, spent a few years there myself. I know when I was there, the company was pretty afraid of large acquisitions. Uh, and when they did do larger deals, you know, they definitely wanted to integrate them very deeply. And I look at what they've done, for example, with GitHub and LinkedIn over the last five to 10 years, uh, much larger deals and businesses where they've largely left these businesses alone to operate on their own. So, uh, and Microsoft's not the only one that's done this, you know, companies like Salesforce and others have done the same. So I, I think, you know, the last uh, 10 years is sort of characterized by large tech companies getting more comfortable doing larger transformational uh, M&A and, and thinking maybe a little bit differently about how they integrate these companies. That's awesome. So, so Kevin, having sat on both sides of the table, um, how do you see it now as a VC? Like when, um, you know, one of the interesting things about starting a company, I think, is some of the advice you get when you're super early is like, don't worry a lot about the legal and accounting stuff. You can fix all that later. And so there's a lot of companies that are a little bit messy um, in the early days. And so when they go to get acquired, well, sometimes even when they go for funding rounds, right, there's like just administrative stuff that hasn't been done, should have been done. Uh, but it can be even worse when they go to get acquired. Like, how, how do you think about um, how, how often, I guess I should say, how early do you start advising companies to think about their acquisition path, both from a strategic perspective, like who are potential acquirers and all that, and then, and then also from the like, you know, operational side of, being in a point where they have their ducks in a row is that is that C is that Series A is that Series B? Do you wait till you have an offer? Like, like what, what's your advice to to startups? Yeah. Well, first, what I would say is um, from a from a having your ducks in a row perspective, uh, it's great to just do that from the beginning if you can, right? I, and I agree with you. I, I I've seen a lot of companies wait uh, until a financing round or maybe until they're in an acquisition conversation. To kind of get everything from a back office perspective, all their accounting and what have you in place. And, you know, it, it's never really too early to start getting a bunch of that stuff put together. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's too early to hire someone in-house uh, ever that, that's sort of running finance for you, uh, managing your books. So I think, you know, it's just good business practice to start doing that on the earlier side, less about preparing for an acquisition and more about just, you know, running your business effectively and efficiently. Um, so, look, I think as it relates to, to thinking about M&A, you, know, uh, you know, strategizing around M&A uh, as, a, as a private company, um, look, I'll tell you, you know, the, the best companies that, that I've had an opportunity and we've had an opportunity to work with here at Emergence, um, they really don't think about exits, right? They really don't think about it. You know, they're focused on solving a huge problem for their customers. They're focused on building an outstanding business. They're focused on building a great culture. Uh, they want to build something long-lasting and iconic, right? And they know that there's always a chance that at some point along the way, a really interesting acquisition offer might come up or they might get lucky enough to take the company public. Um, but I find that the absolute best entrepreneurs aren't thinking that way, right? That's not dominating their thought. Their thought is, how do I build an amazing business? And then those things just kind of naturally come over time. So uh, I think if you're if you're starting a business or you're running a business and you're finding that you're constantly getting drawn to thinking about how do I set myself up to be acquired or how do I set myself up to be public someday, uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure you're you're necessarily thinking about it, you know, in the best possible way. Again, I think those things will come if you're doing a great job. 
Kevin, that, th- this brings kind of like an interesting uh, question here in the sense that the world of, you know, going public has actually changed. And so you have kind of direct listing SPACs and the traditional tried and true path. How are, how are you thinking about the three different kind of pillars there at Emergence? And, and what are you seeing and, and discussing with your portfolio companies? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, you're exactly right. I mean, a lot has changed really just in the last, I would say, few years in terms of the options available for companies that are considering uh, going public. Um, you know, I think the SPAC phenomenon in particular is super interesting. And, and just this year, I think that's something that is, has really kind of come to the forefront again. Um, look, I think each of these options has their advantages and disadvantages. Um, and, you know, for companies that we work with that are considering tapping the public markets, uh, they're typically considering all of them, right? And they're speaking with bankers about, about again, the pros and cons of each. What I have found, at least with the companies that, that we work with most closely, um, is that most of them are still uh, largely considering the more traditional IPO path. And I think, you know, part of this is just due to the fact that it's uh, it's more tried and true, right? Um, you you kind of know how to do it. You know, bankers know how to help you do it. It's fairly predictable. It does come with some downsides. It's a little more expensive than maybe some other options. Uh, it maybe isn't as quick as some other options. Certainly not as quick as, for example, uh, doing something via a SPAC. Um, but I think you know if you if you're planning to 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 have a successful IPO, want to maximize the chances of having a successful IPO, you want to mitigate risk as much as you can. Uh, I think the traditional uh, IPO option is is one that uh, that is probably going to increase the likelihood of your being able to do that. So that's why I think we're seeing most companies go down that road. And Kevin, what do you think about um, some, some of the other trends? Do, do you think these trends are going to accelerate in terms of other ways? For companies and for investors and founders and people to get liquidity because you've had this, uh, you, you know, I think I look back as like when you started your company in the 90s, right? It's like people went to IPO in five, six, seven years and it's that's pretty rare now. And so as companies are staying private longer and maybe SPACs partially arose to sort of deal with that, what do you, what do you see as some other trends? Like have you guys looked at sort of like Regulation A plus and and, and are there other things that are going on? Uh, you know, I look at some of these blockchain-related secondary sales and, and all these things. Are you seeing other trends that are impacting exit options for early-stage startups? I mean, what, what I would say is the, the, the dominant alternative, right, to exit options, um, traditional exit options, is just staying private longer, right? I mean, that's something that we have seen more and more companies do over the last decade, uh, I think, you know, in part, it's due to the fact that you've got more late stage private capital available than ever before. Uh, and so that option used to not be there, right? You used to get to a place, I think, as a private company where literally you had to tap the public markets if you needed additional capital uh, in order to raise the amount of money you might need to get to that next phase of growth. Uh, there just wasn't enough private capital to, to fund those things at that stage. But now that's, that's uh, very different. And so I think actually what we've seen instead is more entrepreneurs saying, gosh, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the idea of being a public company. I'm not sure I'm ready. Maybe my business isn't predictable enough. Maybe I'm just not uh, excited about being a public company CEO and, 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 and dealing with all the regulatory stuff and, and scrutiny that comes along with that. So I'll just stay private longer. Um, I actually think that's not a great thing, you know, personally. And I'm not just saying that as, as an investor, right, who has an opportunity to, you know, start receiving some liquidity once a company goes public. 
I actually think, you know, an IPO is a little bit of a rite of passage, right, for companies. You know, it forces you to grow up, right? It forces you to think about uh, how how much you can grow and how you can serve your customers in ways that you haven't before. Uh, that that staying private doesn't necessarily force you to do. And so I think it's a it's a great thing for the best companies that can tap the public markets to go after. Um, but we still today, I think I still I still believe what we see today is the biggest alternative to that is just raising uh, more late stage private capital and 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 not going after the IPO. So um, that's changing to an extent, but there's still a lot of pretty large late stage private companies out there that I think are deferring that option. And so when you think about companies, you know, exiting in a couple of different ways, exiting to big buyers like Microsoft and Google and Salesforce, exiting to private equity firms and financial buyers and, and people like that, uh, and then also exiting to the IPO, like, what are just some general mistakes that founders make that either cause deals to like, are there, I guess, are there certain founder traits uh, that are common, mistakes that are common that either make deals fall apart or make deals harder than they should be? Well, I would I would probably point to a couple of things that I've seen. One is you, if, if you're getting into serious conversations with a potential buyer, there comes a point where you're just going to have to share a lot of information on the business, right? And there's often a little bit of a dance leading up to this point where you know the company that's thinking of being acquired is is not quite sure if the acquirer is serious or not. Uh, maybe they're worried that the acquirer might compete with them at some point. So they're a little bit reluctant to share a lot of information. And so there's this, this sort of uh, dance that happens, as I said, where you know, you're trying to provide as little information as possible while still keeping the acquirer interested. But the point comes inevitably where the acquirer says, look, if you want to go further, we justifiably need some additional information, some pretty deep information on the business. And I have seen um, some companies, even if they're pretty excited about a potential deal, um, kind of blow things up at this point by, uh, by, if not outright refusing, then largely refusing to share the data that's necessary. And this seems sort of obvious as, as we're talking about it. Of course, you know, you're going to have to provide more information if you want someone to spend a lot of money to buy your business. But I have seen I have seen that at sometimes um, in some cases be a bit of a stumbling block for companies. Um, I would say the other thing that I have seen sometimes is is a little bit of what I would consider to be a culture clash. You know, I mean, I think one of the great things about entrepreneurs is that uh, you know they they tend to be irreverent. They tend to think about things differently. Um, their companies tend to have cultures that uh, reflect some of those traits. Right, more fast moving. Uh, a little bit less corporate and bureaucratic. And obviously, most acquirers, at least when you're talking about you know, substantial acquisitions, they have a very different kind of culture, right? Um, it's, a, it's a little bit more staid. It's a little bit more risk averse. And so I've definitely seen scenarios both, you know, when I was acquiring companies and when I've seen companies be acquired, you know, sort of I've seen the culture clash, you know, sort of show up in some of those meetings and I think you just need to recognize if you're a, an entrepreneur that is thinking of selling their company, you're going to be assimilated, right, into this larger, less entrepreneurial uh, organization. And you, you're going to need to figure out and your team will need to figure out how to operate in that way and sort of how you show up in those meetings, your willingness to sort of demonstrate that you can actually shift, right, and work successfully in that kind of environment. Uh, it's something that I know that acquirers are assessing, right? and so. Being able to show up in a little bit more of a corporate way, with a little bit of a, of frankly, a, a more 
muted demeanor sometimes is helpful in getting the deal done. Kevin, how do you think about that? The the perfect balance of you you have a founder who wants to build a, a massive enduring business. There's an opportunity to to sell that business to an acquirer, and from board standpoint, you have to evaluate that. And there's obviously feelings on a lot of different different levels there, and a lot of different fronts, but. You know, there's also this interesting, you know, as you think about just like on the feeling side where a founder doesn't maybe want to sell his or her business, they want to continue to run it because it's, they've done it for so long. And so how do you think about, how do you, how do you think about that, you know, in terms of when you're seeing acquisitions, how do you assess whether, you know, a founder is kind of ready to do that? Or if they, if you feel like they, it's something that they, a step that they need to take, how do you, how do you navigate that from a board standpoint? Well, the first thing I, I would probably mention on this is, in my view as a board member, um, I, I, I listen to the entrepreneur very intently when it comes to decisions like this. Um, you know, they're the they're they're the founders of the company. They had the vision for this company initially. Uh, they have the vision for what they want this company to be. You know, and sometimes they might feel like a business is going to be able to thrive in a more significant way on a standalone basis. And sometimes they end up feeling like, gosh, you know, being part of a larger company is going to allow me to fulfill my vision in a more effective way. So I always start there, you know, what, what is it that in their gut they really want to do? What are they drawn toward? Um, I think my job as a board member, whether it's related to an acquisition discussion and decision, or frankly, any other significant strategic decision that a company may encounter is to do my best to ensure that the board as a whole is considering the full range of options, right? So, um, you know, if if you know if I feel like an entrepreneur is, um, you know, sort of considering a subset of the options that are available, I'll make sure that you know, to the best of my ability, you know, I, I lay out the other alternatives, right, that might be out there, uh, so that we can consider all of them. Um, but look, in the end, I view myself as counsel, right? And while I I do have a vote on the board. Um, I lean very heavily, like I said, on what an entrepreneur uh, feels is best for the business, uh, given that they're the ones that created it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of do the same thing as an investor, Kevin, because I think um, you know, even when I started angel investing before I was a VC, you know, I would always tell founders that, like, you know, obviously it, it might be different. I've never been in a situation where it was like massively different prices for different buyers, but you know, if there's if you're getting a marginally better deal financially from somebody else. I don't think that's worth it, you know, necessarily to go if the founder wants to go to a different company that is better, a culture fit and everything else, because particularly given that you are so likely to have, you know, clawbacks and escrow and earnouts and different things in so many of these deals, like you want to be in a place that's a good cultural fit. So the founders are happy. Uh, 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 one of the things that the advice that I always got when I was the founder was on financial versus strategic exits, right? It's like some people buy you for your revenue growth or your EBITDA or something like that. but like. You know, my investors would always say, but sometimes you just occupy a, a, a piece of the ecosystem where not a lot of people have that power and, and somebody has to have you and, and they have to pay a price that might be disconnected from your financials. And so I'm interested in your perspective on financial versus strategic exits. And, and particularly when a company has a really strategic exit and gets that like thing that people would say is kind of like a crazy multiple in some sense, like. You know, what, what are the factors that drive that? Are they factors that are under the entrepreneur's control or not, generally? Hmm. Um, I would say often they're not under the entrepreneur's control. I can tell you from my experience um, on, on the acquirer side of the equation, 
the instances where the big strategic multiples and prices were being considered were instances where a very senior executive in the company said, this is a huge strategic priority for us and finance organization. Um, I want you to cover your ears <laughs> when I say how much it's going to cost or how much I'm willing to pay uh, to acquire this company. Um, so that's how the big deals get done uh, in my own experience, right? Someone very senior in the company has made a decision, right? That uh, a space is really strategic and a particular company in that space is the asset. It is the company that is going to address that big strategic opportunity for the, for the business. Uh, if you get to a place where you know the company isn't necessarily um, feeling like it's super strategic, or if they feel like they've got a, a number of different options, right, in terms of companies that might acquire, you're almost always talking about uh, a price that is going to be determined by financial metrics, right? Where you you look at sort of standard multiples, or you look at the company's revenue, uh, and then you know corp dev inevitably comes up with a price, right, uh, that the company will be willing to pay. So, um, so I think the real key is you know. Um, you've got to be in an area that is deemed highly strategic and just an absolute top priority uh, for a company. And if you're in that range, if you're in that world, uh, then you can expect, you know, a, a strategic deal rather than a financial deal. That's a great answer. Um, so, so last question, Kevin, before we wrap up here, um, you know, founders get approached a lot with tire kickers. And, uh, you know, if I think about my own experience, I mean, we were probably approached seven or eight times by people who said, hey, we think we might want to acquire you guys. Uh, most of those things did not turn into an LOI. A lot of them didn't even turn into verbal offers. And so there seems to be a pretty big gap between big companies kicking the tires and, you know, on your company and, and actual sort of LOIs to, to close deals. Um, what's your advice to founders who sometimes, particularly first time founders who get that first kind of call or email of, Hey, we're just talking to you guys about M&A. Um, you know, do, do you counsel people not to get too excited or you know, what, what have you seen in terms of how many of these deals actually close from that perspective? Yeah. Generally I say, don't get excited. <laughs> the hit rate on these things is really low. Um, I do think it is worth a company having an ongoing dialogue, right? Even if it's a low level dialogue with, um, you know, other companies in their space or, you know, uh, strategics in their, in and around their space. Um, because, you know, look, I mean, those might ultimately at some point blossom into an M&A conversation. They can also end up blossoming into a great partnership conversation. That's not necessarily M&A related. Um, and, and there are other things that can, can come out of those relationships too, right? So I do think it's worth as a CEO, you know, uh, having relationships with critical companies in your ecosystem. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say when someone is, is coming in and they want to have an M&A conversation, if that's not something you're necessarily excited about, just say, look, you know, happy to begin building a relationship, not something that's on the table for us right now, but let's just get to know each other and, and keep the keep the lines of communication open. I find that most potential acquirers are very open uh, to something like that. Um, I think where it becomes a little bit trickier is when, you know, the acquirer is a little bit persistent, right? And maybe they say, well, why don't you share some information with us? And maybe we are interested in acquisition. And can we meet some of your co-founders? And 
that I think you have to be really cautious about, right? Because um, once you get to that phase, it can start consuming a tremendous amount of your time, right? Which you, you typically don't have a lot of, you know, very well when you're running a company. Um, the other thing that can happen in those cases, which can be very dangerous, is that, you know, if word gets out within your company that you're having M&A conversations, it can really spook people, right? It can spook them. And actually, on the other side, it can actually get them really excited that maybe something's going to happen and then people can feel let down, right, when it doesn't. So you want to keep these things fairly confined and contained. Um, and I think if you start taking that extra step beyond that initial conversation, you want to make sure that you're really ready to do so and you know what you're in for. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, well, Kevin Spain, Emergence Capital, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, for those of you that are, are listening to the podcast, thank you for listening. We hope you'll check out the other episodes. If there's guests you would like to see on the podcast, questions you would like us to ask, uh, you can send those to podcast at pjc.bc. And we hope you will check out the rest of season two. Thanks for listening to the Uncovered Podcast. To learn more about PJC and the Uncovered Podcast, visit us at www.pjc.vc or email us at podcast at pjc.vc.